<sighs> okay, here we go. My guest on today's episode is Dr. Jennifer Heiss, and she is an expert in brain health. She is also the Associate Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at McMaster University and directs the NeuroFit Lab, where she researches the effect of exercise on brain health. Now, specifically, Dr. Heiss's research examines the effect of physical activity on brain function to promote mental health, cognition in young adults and older adults, and individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And her new book, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, talks all about overcoming anxiety, depression, and dementia, as well as improving your focus, creativity, and sleep. So she is the perfect person to join me, Brock Armstrong, on this episode of Second Wind Fitness. But before we get started. As you've probably noticed, this podcast is no longer in production, but there are so many people who are still listening to each episode and reaching out to me for advice and help and support that I've decided to keep the dream and this podcast alive, which means I'm paying a few maintenance fees out of my pocket. And I don't mean to make this sound like a woe is me kind of affair, because it is indeed a pleasure to have created something that is being appreciated. But if you felt so inclined, you could go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee to, yes, as it sounds, buy me a virtual coffee. And since coffee is easily my biggest vice, I'm what you would call a coffee snob, if you buy me a coffee, I can pay my hosting fees with all the coffee money that I save. So win-win situation here. So go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee and help keep this podcast and my fancy coffee habit alive. That's brockarmstrong.com slash coffee. Because you are, because your research examines the effects of physical activity on brain function and mental health and cognition and stuff like that, I wanted to just share a story with you because I think you're going to have some some insight and you can help me understand what really went on here. So back in 2003, I developed myocarditis, so an infection in my in my heart, and I had had some bouts of depression and anxiety leading up to that. So it certainly wasn't the only time, but coming out of my stay in the critical care unit and the cardiac care unit and stuff like that, I, I had quite a generalized anxiety disorder and, and some depression coming out of that to the point where once I was given a clean bill of health for my actual heart issue, I kept coming back to the to the cardiologist saying, no, there's still something wrong. Like I feel awful and I have these flutters and it's it, it, I just don't feel right. And he'd run all the tests and Holter monitors, the 24-hour heart monitors. He'd send me home with those. And he's like, no, Brock, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. You know what you need to do is run a marathon or something like that just to, <laughs> to convince your brain that you're okay. And so I got excited about that idea and was like, oh, okay, I'll run a marathon if that'll make me feel better. So I got my cousin to coach me to to run my first marathon and basically fell in love with running and then eventually went into triathlon and was eventually able to come off of the SSRIs that I had been taking to to address the generalized anxiety and and the depression. I was able to titrate myself off and I ha I haven't looked back 
ever since. Amazing. And I always assumed that what was going on was that the, I think this is what the cardiologist thought was that I would just, if I felt strong and capable and stuff, that that would sort of snap me out of worrying about my health so much. But having read your book and looked at your research, I think there may have been something else going on. Mm-hmm. Do you have some insight into <laughs> into what really happened there for me? Yeah, I think maybe there's two things, uh, two major things going on. So probably the first sort of simplest one is that a lot of people develop this form of health anxiety. It's almost like a PTSD, but um, we often think of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder as something associated with war and combat. But sometimes the war can be within For example, people who have a heart condition, a heart attack, or a stroke, um, they feel like the war is within their body, and then they're afraid to move their bodies in ways that um, remind them of those events. Like, So if the heart is racing for someone who's had a heart attack, that's terrifying, and a lot of them avoid exercising. So there's probably a little bit of that like health anxiety, like, is my heart going to give out again? Mm you know, and I don't want it to do that. So that might be part of it, but probably more related to your heart inflammation is is a key underlying source of a lot of forms of depression. So the research shows that, you know, about one in three people don't respond to typical SSRI drugs. And the reason why is because their form of depression, the root cause is not likely serotonin, which the drugs treat, but rather inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so when when the body is inflamed, that inflammation goes to the brain and it can start causing symptoms of depression and anxiety. And so if you had any extra inflammation left over from your heart infection, this could potentially have caused inflammation in the body and led to inflammation in the brain, leading to your symptoms of depression. Now, exercise is the medicine that people with this this drug-resistant form of depression need because it is anti-inflammatory. So each acute bout of exercise, it does increase inflammation a little bit, but then after you finish exercising, it decreases it. So it it sends up the anti-inflammatory cleanup crew to clean up all that inflammation from exercise and then some so that over time you become less and less inflamed and that can lead to a better brain health overall. And in research studies that take people who have heart conditions and haven't been responding to SSRIs, what happens is that those individuals experience clinically significant improvements in their depressive symptoms just from exercising alone, something that the medication could never provide for that that group of people. And so that's likely what was happening was that there was this residual inflammation in your body from from the heart condition that was causing aggravating physically and mentally and your regular exercise through this training regime for your marathon would have reduced inflammation in your body and in your brain to make you feel good it also gave you confidence that you're you know it's exposing you and your body to these symptoms that maybe you feared you know the heart racing 
seem to be like a trigger for you. And so you're ex- when you run at a moderate to vigorous intensity, your heart races, it's difficult to breathe, and it mimics those symptoms of anxiety that you maybe have. And But it's done in this very safe space. So you control when you start, you control when you stop, and you realize that, oh, my heart rate can go up. And it's going to come right back down and I'm going to be okay. And that exposing yourself to those feelings in a safe space really helps you recover, not just physically from the, from the heart condition, but also mentally move forward from, you know, you're no longer that person with the heart condition, but you're an active body uh, who's able to exercise. I like that. The changing the identity that we tell ourselves is such a big part of, I I went through cognitive behavior therapy as well, and I went on to be a cognitive behavior therapy practitioner. And that the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves Mm -hmm. is so important that going from I'm an anxious person to I'm a person training to a marathon is such a great mental shift. What a profound change, right? This idea that we can, yeah, we can make ourselves into a patient and somehow this mind over matter weakens us, not just like physically, but psychologically too. It's so, it's so interesting. And how, when we shift that talk that we have in our head, that can have a profound impact on our propensity to exercise, Mm. but also on our propensity to engage with life more fully. And I think that there's a really cool way you can combine cognitive behavior therapy with exercise. And they act really in synergy to help bolster both both effects. Yeah, yeah, one reinforces the other really in mm-hmm. in so many ways. So it sounds like I had sort of a like four different prongs maybe going on there, <laughs> the like feeling strong and capable, redefining my identity, lowering that systemic inflammation that may have either preceded the the myocarditis or 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 came out of it. But you also, in the book, you talked about the the idea that through exercise, there was um, not only like the serotonin, but there was a, a couple of, and I've forgotten the name, there's an N, NYP? Oh, yeah. Neuropeptide Y, NPY. Yeah. So, tell, tell the listeners about that. I found that so fascinating. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So um, neuropeptide Y is this neuropeptide in the brain that protects the brain against trauma, against traumatic events. So individuals who go to combat that have higher levels of NPY or neuropeptide Y, their brains are protected from the traumatic event and they're less likely to develop PTSD. Hmm. And so we can build more neuropeptide Y with exercise. And the beautiful thing here is that it doesn't have to be intensive exercise. It can be mild or moderate exercise. And when we exercise, it immediately produces more NPY in the brain. And that soothes the anxious amygdala, which is our threat detection center. Mm-hmm. And when we are on, you know, on hyper alert and you know, constantly scanning the environment for threats, that creates anxiety. You know, just the thought that there's a potential threat looming. And so this neuropeptide Y soothes the anxious amygdala so that you can feel calm and feel more resilient. And this is a beautiful thing that mild to moderate exercise can give. Oh, 
Earlier, I, I love what you said that exercise was the medicine that I needed. I love that phrase. And really like looking at, like I spend a lot of time on this podcast, obviously talking about exercise and movement being beneficial for the body and stuff. And I do touch a little bit on the mind. That's not my my area of expertise, but I, even the the title of your book, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, Overcome Anxiety, Depression, Dementia, Improve Focus, Creativity, and Sleep. And it really sounds like exercise is like this cure-all wonder drug that's almost too good to be true. I, how I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but it, how can moving your body just be so effective in for so much of our health, like our mental health, our physical health, everything? Well, the brain depends on movement. It gives the brain the nutrients it needs to thrive, and it expects us to be moving. So this is, mm. um, if we think back to when the brain evolved, it was at a time when we had to expend a lot of energy to hunt and gather our food. So we were moving. We were moving I a lot. I want to just highlight something. Notice that that Dr. Heiss is saying moving, not exercising. Our, bodies, <laughs> our brain expects our body to move. Okay. That's, yeah. I just wanted to highlight that. No, and I think that's really important that um, because a lot of people wrap, they have notions about what exercising means and it's and maybe they have a negative connotation associated with that it means like going to the gym or it means you know right. working out really hard whereas moving the body uh, can give you all the benefits that we typically associate with exercising but probably in a much more enjoyable way like going for a hike outside or uh, going dancing with your partner or uh, boiling in the garden or gardening exactly yes and uh okay yes i i 100 agree that 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 the movement it's really about movement um and moving our body and that sort of should be the focus so yeah so the brain evolved at a time when it expected us to be moving not necessarily moving at the gym but moving (laughs) moving in the environment And so the hypothalamus, which is the brain's energy center, its energy dial is actually set to assume that we will be moving moderately. Mm. And a lot of us are not these days. And so that tells us that the brain is expecting us to move moderately. We're not necessarily moving that much. And so the brain is not getting the vital nutrients that it needs to thrive. And that's why we're finding it difficult to focus, difficult to concentrate. Um, That's why people are experiencing low moods and anxiety. It's why, you know, the aging brain may be declining faster than it should. Mm. It's because the brain is expecting to get all these boosts uh, at a, you know, consistently, regularly um, throughout the lifetime. And there's some really amazing things that happen when we exercise. So we talked about the increase of neuropeptide Y, but even when we sit for long periods of time, what happens is the the blood flow to the brain increases and it brings with it a bunch of nutrients, including norepinephrine, which is like adrenaline for the brain. It really wakes up the brain. But there's also things like lactate, which we typically associate with like the burning in the muscles when we work Mm. hard. But lactate actually moves through the blood directly to the brain. It reports to this brain region called the hippocampus, which is a key memory center. And what it does there is it promotes the birth of brand new brain cells. 
So, wow. yeah. And that happens throughout the lifetime, which is really amazing. So the moving our body results in direct growth within our brain. And so when we're sitting for long periods of time, we're basically turning that off? Yes, essentially, you know, yes. So when we're sitting for long periods of time, we're essentially, we've shut off that tap that, you know, that feeds the brain. So it's, it's essentially starving the brain of what it needs and expects to be delivered from the body. And there's this, this synergy between the brain and the body becomes disrupted. And so this is why there are so many incredible benefits that moving can have, partly because you know, we see them so pronounced now is because we're not moving enough. Most of us are not moving enough. And so when we start to move, we see all these incredible benefits and the brain is really just getting back to where it's supposed to be. It's, you know, incredible functioning self that where it's working optimally, we're just used to it working suboptimally. And so when yeah. we when we start moving, we really see how capable we are. So the problem really stems from our culture has become so sedentary that we view movement and exercise and stuff as being unusual, where our biology actually is expecting it and it, it's expecting it to be usual. So we're instead of adding something in as sort of a like about medicine, I guess, we've taken out a vital nutrient yes. from the body. So all we need to do is put that vital nutrient back. Yes. And we get these benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. It And it, you know, it's similar to eating healthy, eating well, but we have, you know, the, the hunger cues are so strong, right? And the food availability is so easy to get now for most people at least. And uh, those same driving factors are not there for exercise. And in fact, you know, there's this, this counterplay because food, when, when the brain evolved, food, food was so scarce that it needed to conserve energy. And so there was this, this, it expected you to move, but when you didn't need to move to survive, it wanted you to stay still and conserve energy. Right. And so if we flash forward now, the brain is smart. It knows we don't have to move to survive, at least in the in the moment. Uh, and so it goes out of its way to prevent you from expending energy, which is that biological inertia we all feel when we're like, right. I should be working out right now. I should, <laughs> I should go for my walk. I should go to the gym. There's that resistance, like, oh, I'm too tired. I don't really have time. And that's the lazy brain <laughs> trying to get you to conserve energy. So it's funny, the brain needs to move, but it's it doesn't necessarily want you to move. And both of these are relics of our evolutionary past. And now we've created a culture that doesn't require us to move. So we're sort of stuck in this thing of either like completely changing, like I'm standing at, at my workstation right now, I have a standing desk, but not everybody can have a standing desk. Most When I worked for big companies, I was stuck in a cubicle and I had to, to sit so we don't always have the choice of just becoming more active, just live a more active lifestyle. So that's where mm -hmm. exercise enters the picture, I guess. But then we have this lazy brain that's saying, oh, we don't really need to exercise. So I guess <laughs> that's the reason why physical activity is such a, a hard sell, I guess, for people. 
It's a hard sell. And I mean, it is a physical stressor. It is mm. stressful for the body, but it's a good form of stress. But there's that, you know, that that resistance to being knocked out of homeostasis that exercise does. So that adds on to the lazy brain's, uh, you know, appeals for you to stay still. <laughs> this this desire to stay still and stay sort of at your homeostatic happy place in a in a constant balance. So exercise pushes you out of that balance, but it it can be so beneficial for not just the body but the mind and this this form of good stress. So this idea that exercise can push us beyond our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And what happens is both the body and the mind react. They adapt and grow to meet that new challenge. And so we we grow into stronger versions of ourselves, which is really amazing. But if we're not challenging ourselves enough, then we just pretty much stay the same. If we're challenging ourselves too much, that can lead to injury and pain. And so we have this like sweet spot, this comfortably challenging zone where we want to be working out to give the brain the vital nutrients that it needs to thrive. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about that sweet spot, but first we have to pay our membership fees. Do you like to shop on amazon.com and enjoy supporting this podcast? You do? Well, have I got a deal for you. If you start your Amazon shopping adventure by going to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon, I will get a small percentage of the money that you spend. And the best part is that you don't pay anything extra. This all comes out of their pockets. Take that, Bezos. So next time you buy anything on Amazon, go to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon and shop while also supporting this podcast. I truly thank you for being a listener and for your support. That's brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon. Now, I know uh, you've done an Ironman and you did it all by yourself, which is even more remarkable <laughs> because of the pandemic. You didn't choose to, <laughs> to do it on your own. But I, I've done Ironman. I've done triathlons and marathons in the past as well. But I have a feeling that we don't need to do anything that well. I know for sure because I read your book, but I have a, that we don't need to do an Ironman, which is an extremely long event. You took 13 hours, I think you said, to to do your Ironman, which is not unusual. That is not a, an unusual time. Even the pros take seven, eight hours to to do that kind of race. Now, I hope people don't get the message that they need to like train for a marathon like I did or train for an Ironman like you did in order to get these benefits you mentioned a sweet spot. How can somebody find Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, it's quite simple. You can use something we call the talk test and it's as simple as it sounds. Mm -hmm. So the talk test is essentially, let's say you go out for a walk with a friend and you're having a conversation and you're, you're talking easily. That is too light of a pace. Okay. So now pick up the pace And now see if you can still have that same conversation. If it gets to the point where you can only say a few words of what you're trying to say, that's where you want to be, to be comfortably challenged uh, in your movement. So you want to pick up the pace and you don't have to pick up the pace all the time, 
there's this really beautiful form of exercise that we've tested in the lab. It's called interval walking, Mm. where essentially you walk, do your regular walk, but you're picking it up intermittently. And so you can pick it up for three minutes at a time and walk slowly for three minutes, pick it up again and repeat. Or you could do things like pick it up between light posts, or you could add in a few hills to your route, something that gets the heart rate up, makes it difficult for you to have that conversation, that full on conversation. Um, That's where you want to be to get, give the brain really the boost it needs uh, to function optimally. And then, so you've got these, you've got the, the effort zone or the perceived exertion zone is that doing that talk test. How about duration? Is there a a guideline around like how often for how long you should be doing these? Mm -hmm. Well, it really does depend on what you're going for. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do in each chapter of the book is synthesize the science into actionable workouts people could do depending on what they wanted to fix, you know? So if it was, if they were struggling with depression, there's a dep- your workout on, uh, you know, the healing, the healing workout, the remedy. Um, if they're trying to, uh, you know, heal some anxiety, there's the fear buster workout. And, and so it really depends on what you're going for. If you're, if you're looking to improve focus, then something as simple as, standing up for every 30 minutes for a two minute movement break. That's enough, you know, or if you're wanting to boost creativity, something as simple as a 10 minute self-paced walk is enough. Mm. Something to change the scenery, change the context, get you outside of your cubicle um, so that it exercises your mental flexibility so that you can, you're moving more creatively. And so you can think more creatively. But when it comes to things like depression, what what the research shows is when it comes to aerobic exercising, like walking, biking, running, stair climbing, what matters most is duration. So intensity doesn't matter as much. And for every 10 minutes that you walk, you get an additional reduction in your depressive symptoms. Mm. And this is true up to one hour. Oh, okay. And, and most of the studies looked at you know, a 30 minute brisk walk three times a week. So that's what we're looking at. That's a typical prescription that's tested in the lab for reducing anxiety and depression. When it comes to resistance training, it seems like the more intensive the training, the better. And we see that not just for depression. So when I'm talking about intensive resistance training, that's comparing like you know, lifting weights to something more light like yoga or Tai Chi. So when we yeah, add in yeah. the the resistance and the weights, that improves the benefits for depressive symptoms. It also, as our research shows, improves the quality of your sleep. There's two more amazing reasons for everyone to start doing some resistance training or strength training. Mm-hmm. We've already on this podcast talked about the the bone density and mm-hmm. um, the hormonal balance that comes from carrying a little more muscle, especially as we age, which I, I turned 50 this year and a lot of my audience has followed me or is leading the way into the into that part of the what I like to call the second half of our first century on the planet. Mm-hmm. So those things become so much so important doing resistance training for those reasons, but you've just added a couple of more extra awesome reasons to to do things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a, 
at least uh, I've heard that you're a proponent or you you've enjoyed hot yoga in the past. Is there, yes. was that just because you were burnt out a little bit from all the Ironman training or was there, is there some benefit from that that you were looking to get? Yeah. Well, it partly both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for the book and I was, I was dealing with a very difficult time in my life. My marriage had ended and I, I turned to triathlon to help refocus and give me something productive to think about and do. And it was amazing how, how healing that can be. You, like you said, in your, your experience, when you sign up for something big, that seems outside of your capability, it really just, not only does it, it boosts your physical health, but it gives you that confidence that you were maybe lacking in your life. And, and it's just, it really, it can be super transformative, but that, that was done. So this, this, this was a new sport for me. An Ironman was something I never thought would be possible because <laughs> I was never really an athlete. <laughs> but, uh, and I did it solely for the book, just, you know, f- to really demonstrate to people the, all the gifts that exercise can give. Well, I, I guess I did it so I did it solo for the book, because as you mentioned, what happened was I had been on this three-year journey and thought, oh, it'd be super fun. You know, obviously I needed it to heal my own brain, but I thought it would be super fun to track the pro- my progress in this intensive sport while talking about the effects of exercise on the brain. And so this, uh, what happened was I was gearing up for my race August 2020 and I was like in the, oh my gosh, best shape of my life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, everybody knows what happens. The pandemic canceled the world, gyms closed, pools closed, races canceled. And so the reason I did it so low was so that I could finish the book with this really strong point. But since then, you know, it, I mean, maybe you can tell me how great is it to do it with other people because it was so hard to do it by myself. I can't even imagine without any crowds (laughs) or any other racers around you, that would be so hard. Well, I had my, I had my family and friends there, which was really actually quite special, but yeah, I didn't have like someone to chase, you know, how you always like pick that person. Oh, I'm going there. I'm going to keep up with them. Or getting chased by somebody too. You can feel them coming up behind you and like, you're not getting past me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I didn't have that. So I was, and then after doing the Ironman, then the book was due. And so I spent a lot of time being sedentary and gyms were still closed where I am. And and so, yeah, so I had fr- gone from being super active to not really that active and, and developed some pain and tightness. And so I was turning to t- to hot yoga to help to help really rebuild my strength and balance in the muscles, but also to ease some of that pain. Mm. But as somebody who does the research like you do, I'm sure you were looking into the other aspects of, of hot yoga. Mm-hmm. Did you find any, anything that was really beneficial for the, like mentally from, from hot yoga? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, so the, the form of hot yoga I was doing was the 26 to the, the Bikram style and they call it like a, it's a moving meditation. Mm. And most, most forms of yoga practice are that, but it's a, it's a, an hour and a half eyes open moving meditation. And it's challenging. Like you're standing on one leg, it's super hot (laughs) and yeah, you're 100% in the moment. And it came to me at a time, it was in the winter of last year. I started doing it 
And it was exactly what I needed just to remind myself the power of moving meditation because like I struggle with anxiety and symptoms of OCD. And if I'm not careful, they creep in. If I'm not, you know, doing these things regularly, then the stress of life can sort of aggravate them and they bubble up. And so that's what happened in the winter. And I was, I was really uh, seeking some reprieve from those mental symptoms with the movement. And it worked. It did work. Um, I'm happy to report. So I always find that so, so interesting. I think a lot of people, like we've both talked about anxiety. Now you talked about the symptoms of OCD. I talked about my depression. I think a lot of time people are looking for the cure and thinking at some point they're going to be cured but I, uh, you and I both seem to have the, the same experience where we found the things that we can introduce into our routine that keeps those symptoms at bay and makes it easier to manage those symptoms rather than looking for cures, looking for those things that ease the symptoms and, and bring out the best in us is really sounds like that's what you're looking for in your life as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Because I would, uh, maybe you find this too, but I I think that some of my symptoms of anxiety and OCD are actually really positive. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like they, they, they're kind of a superpower in a way, right? Um, It gives me intense focus uh, to do major projects. Um, I have this real strong vision, which maybe I wouldn't have if I didn't have such, you know, intense intense focus. The problem is when that focus becomes negative, then that's when it gets me down the wrong path. And so, yeah, you're right. It's just, it's about maintaining um, a healthy balance, both in the body and the mind and not looking for something to take it away, Mm -hmm. but for something that allows you to control its utility, you know, so it, it can work in your advantage if you're able to, you know, you have the tools that you need to tailor it and and keep it productive, which for me, it includes exercise, number one, it's the medicine I need, number two, mindfulness. Mm. But like you, I also, I also work with a, a therapist, a coach who teaches me cognitive behavioral therapy and helps to refocus my thinking. So it's it's not, you know, just one thing we do once and then we're done. Right. It it really is this lifelong journey and I don't I don't think it's realistic to think life is not going to be stressful. Mm. I mean that's that's what it is. It is stressful. There are dynamic changes in life that will happen throughout the life course, but it's our reaction to those changes. It's our stressful reaction that makes them good or bad. Um, And all these techniques, exercise, mindfulness, CBT, are what helps us react more calmly to all of life's stressors so that they're not so bad. Yeah. No, I like that, that embracing it rather than trying to to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But actually, speaking of something that we would like to get rid of, you you address something mm-hmm. in in your book, like dementia and, and Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Now, I already admitted that I'm I'm getting older, and and so is my audience. So I'm sure they'd be interested to hear how 
movement and exercise affects that because I think a lot of people, myself included, often think of it being just a genetic mm-hmm. thing, like getting dementia or getting Alzheimer's or or bad luck or or something like that. But movement really pay, plays a role in it, doesn't it? A huge role. So research from my lab, we 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 compared genetic risk versus physical inactivity. And in our sample, so about one um about 25% of people had a genetic risk for dementia, which is the apolipoprotein E4. And that's a that's typical within the population. Um, and they were at a slightly higher risk of developing dementia than the general population. However, what we found was that people who were physically inactive, actually, but had a healthy set of genes, that their physical inactivity completely negated their healthy set of genes. Mm. And so they were at a similar risk level, the people who were physically inactive, to the people who were genetically predisposed. So you can't change your genes, but you can change your lifestyle. And I think that that's such a, a powerful message uh, of of hope and control to give to people. Because you're right, eight, getting older and and the fear of dementia is real. And yeah. there's no pill that you can take to cure it. But there are lifestyle changes you can make that can help reduce your risk and and keep it away. So exercise is one of the greatest modifiable risk factors to dementia. It really is an incredible, incredible tool for promoting brain health as we age. And it doesn't have to be intensive. So research from my lab, we used this interval walking protocol. We took seniors who had been sedentary, they were 65 years and older, and enrolled them in this interval walking protocol and saw their memory improve about 30%. Wow. So this is an incredible change. And and I think an important message is that it's never too late to start. And you can get these brain health benefits from exercise at any age. And, you know, for the longest time, I've wanted to make t-shirts that just say, like, something is better than nothing. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You should. (laughs) It it sounds like it applies here, too, that you don't have to, like like we said, you don't have to run a marathon or do an Ironman, but like getting out and and doing a walk and Mm -hmm. introducing things like resistance training and stuff obviously has some added benefit. But it really does sound like something is better than nothing when it comes to movement for mental health and and all these things that we're talking about. Yes, 100%. This is the mantra. Some is better than none. You know, <laughs> just something is better than nothing. And that I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because what it comes down to is you can put in a little bit of movement every day. And that that little bit of movement every day <clears throat> Over the course of your life, it's that consistency mm-hmm. and all of that, those little bits of movement accumulate and really build up over the over the course of the life. Now, I was about to ask you for your top three tips to to give my listeners to uh, to embrace these ideas that we've been talking about and all the ideas in your book. And I, I think that's a, a fantastic first tip is like the, the idea that consistency is more important than the intensity or the duration, mm-hmm. just being consistent. Also, like something is better than nothing. But what other tips would you would you offer that people can just keep in mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one really simple trick is just 
blocking off the time ahead of time in your calendar. Mm. And this is so simple, you know, but often overlooked and include details like what will you do when, where, and with with whom. And the more details you include, the better. This is because, you know, when we have to make all these decisions on the fly, essentially they deplete our willpower. They deplete the brain's energy we need to exercise and get over that inertia. And so when we're not uh, making those decisions in the moment, then we have all that extra brain power to do the movement and to, to, to exercise. So uh, that's number one tip for me is this idea of planning ahead. I've never heard it explained that way, but that makes so much sense. I've always heard people say like, make sure you make the time, not wait for the time to present itself or, or find the time, but make time to exercise. But you make such a great point about like taking all the guesswork out of it. So you, you know exactly what, when, where, what you're going to be wearing, who, who you're going to be with all of that stuff means you can pour that energy into your workout instead. That's so smart. I love it. Okay. What's, what's your next tip? One thing that exercise gives is dopamine. So mm. this is a really important neurochemical related to reward and feel-good feelings. And so when we do things that we enjoy doing, we get a boost of dopamine in the reward system, and it helps to reinforce that behavior so that it's easier to do the next time. Now, naturally rewarding things like food and sex give that to us. And exercise also has the potential to give that to us. But there's, you know, it's it's difficult to get over that hump. So how can we kind of bootstrap the dopamine system ahead of time before we start exercising to make it easier? And one way we can do that is by uh, listening to our favorite music. Mm. So if you put on your favorite, maybe you don't like to exercise to music, or maybe you listen to podcasts, for example. As um, you should. But it, <laughs> As you should. But uh, maybe just before your workout, what you do is you, you crank your favorite tunes, listen to your favorite song, and that's enough to prime the reward system and get the dopamine flowing. And then when you start moving, it becomes easier for you to move. Other things that you can do is add a social component to your exercise mm -hmm. and being together with people that we love, like close, close relationships, even being together with, with a group helps to boost that, that dopamine level and reinforces the, the pleasure and the reward that we get from moving together, which is a really a fun way to incorporate movement into your life. And in fact, there's this there's a really cool study that shows that older adults who work out in groups get significantly more health benefits than those who work out alone, even if they're not working out as hard. Mm. And I just think I love that benefit. And it really underscores the value and the, 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 uh, the value of social relationships for promoting brain health as well. And when you can couple those with exercise, it really helps to build up this social support, social network, and prevents things like loneliness, which can, mm. can affect a lot of older people. Now, this may not stay in the podcast, but just because I know you will have a good answer to this, I think dopamine has gotten a little confused. And I think you were alluding to this at, at the beginning that dopamine in and of itself isn't the reward hormone. 
it reinforces the reward homework. So it almost helps us learn that this thing you're about to do is rewarding. So do it again. Am I, am I interpreting Mm -hmm. that right? You can probably explain it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And I try to dance around that a little bit with, uh, because it is, it's very, it's kind of nuanced. Mm -hmm. I personally think that this, that this idea, yeah, it's a reinforcer of positive behavior, like a reinforcer of connections and, and, and so it, it links rewarding experiences with an activity or, or action. And so, um, but for most people, I think that's quite nuanced. Like for most lay people, that's a bit nuanced. And so (laughs) at the end of the day, for most people, it's like, it's, it's, it's increased when we experience a rewarding experience and, um, Ultimately, this leads to pleasure, whether that's dopamine per se or or not. Um, yeah. But yes, yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little nuance. But Ed, the only reason that I, I sort of have taken this on as, as a personal mission to, to help people understand a little bit better is because I think a lot of people use dopamine as a scapegoat for some bad behavior. It's like, well, dopamine's rewarding me for this behavior. So I'm powerless to change and stuff. And I'm like, no, it's not actually like you can apply dopamine to the rewarding activity of not engaging in the unwanted behavior. Like it, it can work for anything really, as long as we're using it correctly. But this, this idea that we're addicted to things because of dopamine, yes. Oh yeah, I see. Well, all drugs of abuse increase dopamine, but to supernatural levels. Mm. And then what happens is that the reward system, it's too much for the brain to handle. And so the brain strips away its dopamine receptors so that there's less receptors for the dopamine to bind to. And then it can't produce that rewarding experience. Right. right? So, But what happens is that builds tolerance to the drug or alcohol. And it takes away the pleasure you would naturally get from naturally rewarding things like food, sex, and exercise. And so the only thing that brings pleasure now is the the addictive substance, this supernatural high. And so in that case, I mean, it's it's reinforcing the bad behavior, yeah. And and it's a part of the brain that's really it cha- it's just challenging for human beings, right? Yeah. This this uh, this idea that we can we can alter the brain in unhealthy ways as well as healthy ways. But the really great thing um, about exercise and the brain itself is that the brain can heal mm. as soon as you take away that supernatural substance. The brain is reminded, okay, well, we need to build more dopamine receptors. We need to replenish the reward system again. And it starts to rebuild and regain that pleasure for everyday things. But that takes time. And exercise can help speed that up. So not only does it help give the brain the dopamine that it needs to thrive, but it also helps replenish the receptors or make them more sensitive to dopamine so that you do feel that sense of reward more readily. But yes, I, I agree. I think, you know, this idea of dopamine being a crux, you know, or, or a a scapegoat for bad behavior is not right. It's, it isn't right. And it's not a reason to maltreat your brain. (laughs) (laughs) What you were just saying about dopamine is also true for adenosine 
I actually saw an Instagram just before we got on this call. I saw an Instagram <laughs> from you talking about exactly how we can actually use exercise to increase that, which helps us sleep. So actually, since I brought that up, I know I interrupted the your top three tips, but uh, can you just highlight that? Because I know people struggle with sleep so much and this really is yeah. important. We struggle with sleep. Absolutely. One in three people struggle to sleep. And that number gets higher as we get older. Unfortunately, a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night or they wake up too early. So you may be in bed for, you know, the required amount of time, seven to eight hours or something. And, but not getting the amount of sleep that you need. And that can make you feel sleepy during the day. And we need sleep to replenish and refresh the brain so that it cleans out the waste products from the metabolism during the day and can function better. And this helps to keep dementia at bay as well. Mm. And so moving more during the day helps us sleep more at night. And one way this does this is through the production of adenosine. So when we expend energy during the day through movement and through our other activities, we break down the cellular currency of, uh, called ATP. And the, the metabolism, the byproduct of that metabolism is adenosine. Mm -hmm. So the more energy we expend during the day, the more adenosine we build up. And the brain has this sensor for adenosine. When it gets too high, it triggers sleep. And so that it's this natural sleeping aid, which helps us to sleep deeper at night. We get deeper the slow delta waves during deep sleep is really what helps to restore and replenish the brain's energy source while we sleep so that we can wake up feeling refreshed. Yeah. And so you're less likely to wake up in the middle of the night, for example. And during my competitive athlete days, I was so focused on ATP for its like energy giving <laughs> benefits and like how much ATP can I can I use up or like keep in balance the lactate threshold and everything? And now as I'm moving into my non-competitive years and, and focusing more on general health and stuff, it's so interesting to ATP still plays a role, but in such a, a different way. I find that just, just fascinating. The, the human body is so cool. So cool. But, okay. So let's get back to the, to the tips. I'm sure people are listening going, Brock, do you I want the tips. You <laughs> derailed her completely. So, so I think we've got the... Uh, Consistency is key. Some is better than none. Put it in your calendar. Include all the details. Couple it with rewarding things. Right. Couple it with rewarding things. That's how we got off. That's how I got you off track. <laughs> <laughs> Being with, uh, you know, close friends, close ties, exercising together. Unless you have some more, that was plenty, but it sounds like you have one more. <laughs> <laughs> I have one more last like fun trick actually okay. for the days when you really, really need a boost. <laughs> so we talked about the lazy brain and its, its desire to keep to energy conserve. And so this is part of the biological resistance, but you can... You can trick the brain a little bit by convincing it or reminding it that resources are plenty. And the way that you do this, this research is just so fun. That's why I like to talk about it. But you can take a swish of like a sugary drink. It could be like Gatorade or Powerade or um, juice even. Swish it in your mouth and spit it out. Mm. And the mere presence of sugar in the mouth seems to be enough to convince the lazy brain that it's going to be okay to move. Mm. And usually you can move with less effort 
especially at the very beginning of your workout, which I just think is so fun. So if you're really stuck on the couch and need to get up moving, try this, like, you know, swish a little sugary drink in your mouth and spit it out. (laughs) You don't even have to consume it to get the benefits, which is really fun. At some points during really hot races, when your stomach just basically doesn't want to have any more any more food in it or anything, but you feel like you're about to bonk. We used to do that with like Coke and stuff during a race. You mm-hmm. take like a little cup of Pepsi or Coke or something, swish it around and spit it out. Cause if you drank it, you knew you were going to throw it up eventually anyway. This is so yeah. gross. I th- don't do Ironman races. People like this is, <laughs> it's not a good thing to do, but this is the kind of thing that we did. And, and there are studies on um, swishing, uh, was it pickle juice for, to relieve cramps? as well. So it's interesting (laughs) that you don't actually have to ingest these things to get the benefits. Our brains are just like, oh, okay. Okay. It's just a, yeah, there's plenty of resources here. So we're okay. Yeah. 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 It's really, it's really funny. And I mean, doing these difficult sports like marathon and triathlon, I mean, there, there is this benefit that you get from pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. And for that's very individual, right? For some that is doing a one hour walk and for others it's doing a one hour run so it's very personal um and for some it's running a marathon and others it's doing this travel on um but this this resiliency that you get from from doing these difficult things that you think are outside of your capability is just an incredible gift that exercise gives from from pushing yourself not just physically, but mentally. That's certainly what I found from my participation in that sport. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> now, in your book, the end section is all like photos of of you and I'm assuming your daughter. And I'm not my daughter, my mom. <laughs> okay, that's I was thinking this is all like family members all in there. But I love that you used people that you know, and not like didn't bring in like professional fitness models to do the exercises, but the whole, like the back of the book just demonstrates all these great exercises. So you don't have to be left out. And during the book, pretty much every chapter has a very specific, you talked about that, like the, the fear workout and the depression mm-hmm. workout and, and so they had catchier names, I think, but I really, I really appreciate that about the book. And it's very prescriptive as well as telling a very personal story of your mm-hmm. own you really are very open in it and and very courageous. I, I I love when people are feel that they can share their story because it really does just make it that much more personal. And it made me feel like I'm not quite as much of an outlier because I'm like, oh, Jennifer went through the same kind of stuff as me. Oh, <laughs> I'm not alone. So thank you mm-hmm. for for doing that and putting that all together. Now, if people want to find your book, if they want to find you online so they can follow you, where is the best place for them to go? Yeah, so my book is called Move the Body, Heal the Mind, and you can get that anywhere books are sold. Uh, I'm online, so you can look at the backstory around the solo Iron Man and the book production at my website, jenniferheiss.com. And I'm on Twitter, at Jennifer Heiss, and my last name is spelled H-E-I-S-Z. And uh, I'm on Instagram at dr.jenniferheiss. Okay. Yes, please connect. It's fun to share stories with people. And I think, yeah, it was, it was extremely, uh, it made me feel very vulnerable to write all the personal Mm. stuff in there, but I, I did it because I want people to see representation, you know, successful people 
struggle and learn to live and manage their mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to to know that uh, these things can be kept secret. They don't need to be exposed. They, they're so hidden. But I think by giving them light and giving them exposure, it really does give people a lot of hope that they're not alone and that it's going to be okay for them too. Yeah. I agree. And, and thank you for, for sharing that because it really, it helped me again. And as uh, somebody who is constantly ma managing my symptoms and successfully managing my symptoms, that really does, it makes a difference. It really helps. So thank you. And thank you for coming thank on you so much for having Second Wind Podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful to have you on. It was really a fun conversation. Yeah, we didn't uh, go too crazy off topic for people, but I, I sure enjoy talking about this stuff because I'm well versed in the benefits, the physical benefits of, of movement, but the, the mental ones are, you know, they may even be more impactful and more plentiful than, than the physical ones. So, so important. It's amazing, right? Thank you very much.